Every dedicated Christian that I know of, at least, likes the thought that God wants to do something great through them. People have come to me and said, I want to, I'd love to play the piano. Maybe, maybe you've heard me say that. I'd love to play the piano. But people have come through here and say, oh, you know, when you hear uh, the Ludwig girl play the piano and you watch it and you just, you just marvel at the way that both hands go two different directions at two different speeds with two different timings. And I'm thinking, and I'm listening to the beauty of the music. They get to sit down at any time they want and produce beauty. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Anytime they want to do it, they can set up that thing and any piano produce beauty. Do you realize that? Well, you do. The privilege of that? You say, oh, Brother Bill, I love to play piano. And people come up to me and I'll say to them, no, you don't. And they go, what? What do you think, I'm lying? I say, well, you're not willing to put in the thousands and thousands of hours of personal sacrifice of the doldrums of practice. Because if you want to play piano, go down and start taking piano lessons and, you know, start the, the how many hours you had to practice before you could produce beauty. The beauty comes at the end of a lot of suffering. Is that not true? Is that not true with any instrument you play, almost? Now, I, now I, you may have a person or two in this auditorium that are supernatural gifted people. I knew a guy at school that he, he didn't even know he had any musical ability. He, and one day he sat down at the piano and just started, you know, doing a, you know, a couple of doom, 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 doom. And it seemed like it came easy to him. He took a lesson. And, I, I, and excuse me for saying this, but he could play like you played after one year. And he played for, we had 600 men singing in a Preacher Boys deal. We had 600 of us singing together. And he played all the song. And, and the leader of it would just call the name of the song out. He never had an open book. He'd say, play Victory in Jesus. And he'd, but he didn't, just didn't play it. He played chords and filled in. You know, you fill the music in with all kinds of runs and chords and other stuff. And I'm not sure what I'm talking about, but hey, I'm giving it the best shot I can. But I mean, you know, the guy played it fancy. That's all I know. He played it fancy. And so after the, after the first, uh, this is what they call evangelistic song leading course. I've taken an evangelist. I know you don't know that. But I went to him afterwards and I said, man, how long did it take you to be able to pl play like this and, and just play everything? Oh, he said a year. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about you and me. I thank God that there's no oil without the squeezing of the olive. There's no wine without the pressing of the grapes. There's no fragrance without the crushing of the flower. And there's no real joy without sorrow. I'm going to talk today for a few minutes on how God makes a spiritual athlete. God wants you to be spiritually in shape. In shape. He wants you to be, excuse me for the illustration, but the Arnold Schwarzenegger spiritually. 
and we can be. Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to talk about how he talked to his uh, Jacob. You remember Jacob? Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, a little bit down in his life. It says, Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto God uh, of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, Here I am. Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Now, there's no dad that wouldn't like to hear that. I'm going to make of your kids and you a nation. You're not just going to have a few grandchildren. You know, people come to me for all these years I've been here, and they'll say, hey, I got 20 grandchildren. And they're like, that's bragging rice, man. I got great-grandchildren. I got 2,500 great-grandchildren. Nobody ever said that. But Jacob could say that. He literally had millions of, of relatives. When they came out of Egypt, they had something around two and a half million people. Only 75 went down. Only 75. They were his family. When they came out, two and a half million, some... 400 years, 430 years later. Now, the question is, uh, wouldn't you be excited if God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation? Most people will be thrilled with that promise. Uh, they, they are. Uh, God is going to bless you. Uh, most Christians uh, want to sing the song, To be used of God. You know, I'm going to sing that song. Oh, I want to be used of God, preacher. Okay, okay. But the God we deal with, and the title of the sermon is the God of rigor. We worship and serve a God of rigor. How was God going to make Israel a great nation? That's the question. He says, I'm going to send you down to Egypt. Don't worry about going. Because in that Egyptian experience, you're going to... Come out of it, your family, a great nation. I don't know that Jacob knew it was going to be 430 years. I just, you know, America is not even just a little over half of that. I mean, you know, think of how long. That's 12 generations of people minimum. If there's three generations per 100 years, that's 12 generations of folks. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of time. But you know what I find? God's not in a hurry. He, he, time is not what it is with you and I. We're just short. We're little short-termers. But God's working something way bigger, way past you. Like I said, he's playing chess. He's not playing checkers. So how was God? So Jacob's excited. Jacob gets his promise. His family's going to go in there. He's going to come out a great nation. Not just a nation, a great nation. And I don't know if it came across the mind of Jacob. I don't think it probably did. But we know, looking back on it, God's methodology for making them a great nation. And it was through slavery, cruel bondage, loss of personal freedom, deprivation, unfair labor practices. 
That was God's plan for greatness. I can tell you this, nobody would choose it, right? If you said, Bill, I'll, uh, I'll make your family great, but they're going to be slaves. They're not going to get paid. They're going to be somebody else's property. They don't have human rights. Uh, they're, they're just property, and I'm going to have it that way for the majority of 430 years. I'd be like, oh, no. Wow, that's off. That's tough. Well, let's look at our text verse right here in Exodus one thirteen. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and all manner of service. In other words, basically, they let the Israelites do all the work. The Israelites learned how to build. They learned the skills of Egypt in the field, and they learned everything about growing, making food. And all their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. I looked the word up. The word rigor means harsh, inflexible, stiff. Rigor is God's one of God's favorite formulas for success in life. This is going to help you. What we got a bunch of we got a bunch of fake news preachers out there saying God wants to make your life easy, He wants to make your life healthy, and He wants to make your life wealthy. He just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and have a real easy time of life. That's not the God of the Bible that I read. You read the Bible I read. That's not the God that I read about. That's not the way He treated His children. That's Bible, twice in the New Testament says, look back to the Old Testament, see who God is and how he treated his people, uh, what he likes, what he doesn't like. No, it doesn't say it in those terms. But it basically we learn by example what they did and how God dealt with them, who were serving. We understand the God of the Bible is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Don't you try to make two gods out of that. The God of the Old Testament. God. The Bible says in Colossians that Jesus created everything. He's In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. That's Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You, you say, I don't understand the Trinity. Trust me, there's a whole lot of things you don't understand. And there's a whole lot of things you don't understand you use every day. Explain to me in detail what electricity is. Explain to me in detail sun and how it travels all that distance. And when it hits something, it warms it and all that. How does the sun continue to go without using up its energy? And just... There's, in science, there's way more questions than there's answers. Way more questions than answers. And so the more you study science, the more you see there's a God. There's an intelligent creator behind all this, and he is not just a little intelligent. Whoa, he's massively intelligent. He knocks my socks off the more I look and the more I honestly uh, study it. So God wanted to prepare a nation to conquer great and mightier nations than themselves. He was preparing them to go into the, what they call the promised land that was promised to Abraham, was promised to Isaac, was actually promised to Jacob, and they didn't get to go. He says, not for you. I'm not going to give this land to you, but I'm going to give it to your people, your kindred. And it was, it was, he sent them down to Egypt. He built a great nation in Egypt. That was a group of people that were meant to go into the promised land, which was seven great nations that were educated in war. High-walled cities. I've been to Jericho. They said the wall was up to 80 feet high. 
indomitable by farmers and by masons and by brick builders. Uh, not doable by normal circumstances. And they didn't have iron chariots and they didn't have weapons of war and slings and stuff they would normally would take to take a city like that. They didn't have any of that. But they had God. And the one thing they had is they knew what work was all about. They weren't afraid to work. Brother, if you don't learn anything in life, learn to work. Ladies, learn to work. And make your home the cleanest, nicest, well-kept. Make sure the laundry's done, the dishes, the dishes are done. Make sure the floors are swept up and the square corners, not round corners. Make Oh, there's some conviction going on this morning. You know what I mean? Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not as unto men. I think that's Bible. That means with all your heart, man, I'm not cleaning this house for my husband. You say, I'm cleaning this house for Jesus. He's coming today. Ooh, Jesus is coming today. I'm going to clean this baby. I'm going to get all the cobwebs out. I'm going to get this thing. Jesus is coming today. And men, there's nothing worse than a lazy man. All the women said, oh, lazy man. He's not worth the bullet it'd take to kill him. man that won't support his own house, the Bible says, is worse than an infidel. And an infidel is real bad. You be a working animal. Working early in the morning to late at night. And after you get homework, work, work, for the night is coming which no man can work. Put your hand to the plow. Don't, you don't look back. Work's beautiful. Work's a gift of God. Work is pre-fall. Before Adam fell, he said, work and take care of the garden and everything. Work is a blessing, not a curse. You people retire know exactly what I mean, don't you? Sometimes I know in your mind you're thinking, man, it'd be nice to go back to work. to be responsible again, to have a duty again, to have a, a, an agenda ahead of me. All you guys like, where are we going to eat today? <laughs> forgive me. Forgive me. <clears throat> I'm going to say God's timetable is not our timetable. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 25. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God and by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. The process of time was over 400 years. That's a long, long time. So what is the lesson out of that? <clears throat> Quit putting God in a box. Quit saying God's got to do this. You begin to pray about something. He don't do it in a year yet. God don't want me. A year. A year. I know that I felt God called me into the ministry. And, and, and for some reason or another, I, I never, I, I was laying carpet. Laying floor covering, kicking carpet in, and stretching. I lay, I lay buildings like this, direct glue down on my knees all day, you know, with a trowel and trowel and cement, rubbing it in, all that. This is what I did for 17 years. 17 years of hard bondage and rigor. That's right. And I wonder sometimes when I was on my knees and they were swelled up tight, and I still had to get down on them because I had to do the job. 
I wondered, what God, what are you doing? You called me into the ministry. And a little voice said, this is the ministry. He was teaching me. He was doing things for me that only that would do. So don't get discouraged. People that succeed with God are willing to have patience. Look the word up in the Bible, big word. They're willing to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon Him. Most of us get discouraged and want to quit when things don't just like this. And we often quit just before God answers. We give up just before God comes. We say, oh, gosh, God didn't. Yeah, you don't have to. God's coming. If He says He's going to come, He's going to come. God was not only training a nation, He was training a leader. Towards the end of their rescue, He raised a man up named Moses. Most of you know the history of Moses. I won't go into it, but in the first 40 years of his life, he learned to be a, a somebody. Moses was a somebody. He was a adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He got to know all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He got to know all their medical wisdom, all their, all their genius that they had. They had a lot of genius. And he learned all that genius, and he knew it all. He dressed like they did. And then God drove him into the wilderness, the backside of the desert. He didn't just go to the wilderness. He went to the backside of the desert. He went to the he was an unknown nobody. So for 40 years, he turned learned to be somebody. Then God says, here's another 40 years of training. He sent him out of the backside of the desert for 40 years. He learned to be a nobody. And then after he turned 80 years old, God saw, he saw this bush that was burning. You've been out west. You know that, that sage. It, it literally explodes when it burns. It explodes. It don't just burn. It goes like gunpowder. That bush was burning, but wasn't being consumed. He went over to look at it. Of course, you know the site. Exodus chapter 3, you know, take your shoes off your feet, the ground you're standing on is holy. And he met God again. He says, I am the I am. I'm going to send you back to liberate my people. I've heard their cry. It's time. They've matured. They're ready. They've multiplied. The work's been good for them, not been bad for them. Been good for them, not bad for them. It grew strong people. It grew people that knew how to work, people that were in shape, people that knew how to do work with disappointment. And uh, he wanted a group of people that knew how to take a hit and go get shake it off and keep going. He wanted a group of people who weren't going to get discouraged when things didn't go their way. He wanted a group of people that were going to make it, put their head down, make it happen, suffer through it. Yeah. He, and he developed them. So he sends Moses back out there, 80-year-old man. The next 40 years, Moses died 120. The next 40 years of his life, he learned to be, I'm going to get this right now, learned to be a somebody who thought he was a nobody. So the first 40, he was a somebody. Second 40, he was a nobody. And the third 40, he was a somebody that thought he was a nobody. That's God's fitness program. The Bible says you must have, before honor comes what? Humility. Uh, a leader without humility is a plague upon your soul. You must have the training of humility before you get power. Are you on the backside of the desert, Christian? Do you wonder if God knows your name or even knows you live? 
Do you feel lonely, forsaken? Does it seem sometimes to you that you're suffering pointlessly? The fireman just broke his ankle. He's being humbled. He can't walk. His wife's got to take care of him. He's married to a redhead. They're not sometimes the best nurses I ever saw. But anyways, redhead kind of smack you. Shut up. You're all right. I mean, just kidding now. You got red hair in here? I didn't look around and see who had red hair. I'm just kidding. But you know, are you suffering pointlessly? No, God's got a point with everything he does in your life. Born again believer, don't be discouraged in the fact that God's he's not left you, he's not forsaken you. Listen, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He said in Philippians 1, 6, he says, uh, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. We quote that over and over again because that's such a phenomenal verse, a small verse, but I'm encouraged today that everything that was brought into my life by God's grace, even my, even my sin, God can turn around for good. You are in God's spiritual fitness program. I don't know if you know it or not. If you're born from above, you're in his fitness program. I have a daughter-in-law. Is she here? Good, I'm glad she's not here. I'm going to talk to you about my daughter-in-law that she would uh, probably say, I wish you wouldn't say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. When she, she's a city girl. City girl. You know what I mean? I'm kind of a country boy. And she's a city girl. Troy was raised as more of a country boy way by far than he would be. Now, what I mean by city, well, I can't go into that. But anyways, she didn't like to exercise. She didn't like to get up early. That's two strikes against you. Get one more, you're out. And so about... Ten years ago, my son came to her and he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm 40. I think he was 40 years old. At 40, it's a crisis. He said, you know, I got two boys. They're getting big. I can't let them get bigger than me. I can't let them get muscled up more than me. So I'm going to have to start going to the gym, muscling up. going to have to lift weights and exercise because I can't let them where they – I can't get it where they can whip me. So I, my son gets up 5 o'clock in the morning. He tells his wife, I'm getting up at 5 o'clock, going to the gym, working out for an hour or so, coming back, showering, going to work. His wife looks at him and says, you ain't going to the gym. I've seen what's down at the gym. You ain't going to the gym without me. Now, that's a wise woman. And she says, she's going to get up at 5. He said, you're going to get up at 5 o'clock and go with me. So he probably thought it was going to be short term. But she, she goes, gets up at 5 o'clock, goes down to the gym, and starts this bicycle thing. Well, man, I mean, she can pedal, you know, just a little, she's shot, you know, out of shape, never really having exercised much as a program in her life. And so I, I, I'm out of it, you know, because I'm not nosy. And uh, I, I didn't know what was going on in their life. And I get a call from her 
and she says, you know, in the sermons you preach, you talked about the benefit of exercise and, you know, God's exercise program. And she says, I never got it. She says, uh, Dad, I got it. I got it. it the sacrifice is, oh, at first it's horrible, but later on, she said, it's exhilarating to be able to get on that bicycle and ride that thing that it won't ride no more. Or to run to where you can kick it at the end. Or to lift weights to where that, that repetition of six is weight you couldn't even lift one time. Now you do six reps and that last one you do up there, no probably seven, eight. The benefit of rigor is what I'm talking about. If you will let God take what's going on in your life and let Him help you, because so, we're so diverse. Your rigor is not my rigor. I lay the floor cover 17 years. That was a rigorous training program for me, but my wife didn't. She had a different kind of rigor, being married to me, right? But I mean, you know, we have different tests and different, and different levels and all this, but God does what's necessary for you because the God of rigor wants to build you into a, into a fine specimen of a Christian who can take the storm, who can take the resistance, who can have joy in the middle of loss, victory in the middle of seeming defeat. Are you in God's spiritual program? Now, now the children of Israel didn't get it. In Acts, when Stephen was going down through the, what went on in the Old Testament, he said, verse 25, For most suppose his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. I'm not saying that God explains it to you. God doesn't explain why he's doing God never came to me and says, oh, by the way, I'm doing this for you because I want He never comes to me. He doesn't owe you an explanation and many times does not give you one. You have a Down syndrome child or an autistic child. He's not going to explain to you why. You have a baby die, drowned in a pool. 29 children so far this year drowned in pools in Florida. There's 29 mothers that are asking themselves some questions. But I know if, there, if any of those 29 mothers are born-again Christian mothers, they can know this. Ultimately, God's going to use that for good. I, and, uh, the Knots lost their boy. I think he was 21 years old when he died on a motorcycle. 22 years old. Um, somehow or another, that was for good. Because all things work together for good to them. The love of God and the call according to His purpose, brother. Joseph, I don't have time to go into Joseph, but Joseph is part of this. He was the first one to go to Egypt of Jacob's family. Jacob, Joseph preceded Jacob. But man, who would not want to be a Joseph? I mean, not one bad thing said about Joseph in the Bible. Ooh, doggies, that's good. There's not many people in the Bible that nothing bad said about them. Can't say that about David. Can't say that about Solomon. 
Can't say that about Elijah. You know, there's not many people in the Bible that not some, they had some trouble. Says, but you don't find a word bad about Joseph. You won't find a word bad about Daniel. Both of them boys were in the God's school of rigor in extreme. Amen? They, they, God raised the rigor bar for them high. Joseph sold as a slave. Daniel sold as a slave. And yet, two of the most prominent people in the Old Testament that we would consider to be successful with God were Joseph, which was sold into slavery, and Daniel, which was sold into slavery. Now, how would you have reacted in a similar situation? You say, bro, I'd have been mad at God. I'd have quit church. I'd have never said a good word about Christianity after that. Then you failed. God's, God, God's rigor program, God's program of building you. What's it based on? Trust. Trust. Joseph trusted God. When everything looked bad, Joseph trusted God. When everything looked bad, Daniel trusted God. Simple, doable. Every one of you can do it. God doesn't, I love that about God. He doesn't ask us to play the piano like Ludwig because I don't have it. I could take lessons from now to the, to the millennium and I'd never be able to probably play like that because I just don't have the, the, the gifts that require some of that labor. But I bet you she can never lay carpet like I did either. I bet she can't kick a... a, a uh, you know them kickers that we use, them stretchers? I could kick either leg, but either leg. I had talent. I could, I could kick that kicker all day long. I wish you couldn't do that. And I bet you wouldn't want to do it. And oh, oh Joseph, he couldn't have, if you'd have said, Joseph, well, let me tell you, okay, what did Joseph say? Genesis 45, 5, for God did send me before you to preserve life. What did Joseph say? Genesis 45, 7, and God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives for a great deliverance. What did Joseph say? Genesis 45, 8, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. He had a clear vision of who's controlling stuff. And born-again believer, you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify your God in, God in your spirit and in your body. Whatever happens, God's going to do something special in your, in, your, in your unique exercise program of spiritual development. Recently, Millie, epitome of health, jumped off the cliff. I mean, she went down. I mean, she had a normal, everyday, benign surgery that thousands have gone through and recovered. And poor Millie, they nicked uh, one of her organs, and it leaked inside of her, I think, and gave her peritonitis or some sort of an infection in there. And she has been suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering. You know what I thought about all that, Millie? 
boy, God's really doing something through my life. Now, I know you don't see it. it. It's okay. But do like Joseph did. Do like Daniel did and say, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to see what you're going to do with all this. What would you have done? Many times our training is not for you primarily, but for someone else. Example. Joseph went down to Egypt, suffered, obviously, in 13 years in captivity as a slave. Became the second ruler of Egypt. But what was really all that about? That was for generations to come. That was for generations to come. In other words, God, folks, God isn't just dealing with you. He's dealing for the benefit of your children. For the benefit of your children's children. For your children's 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 children. You've looked at the genealogies. You guys probably looked them up. Some guy that lived for God and how God blessed that family five, six, seven, eight, ten generations out. God's doing something way past you. If you'll trust him. You may not see it with your eyes. But believe it by faith. And God will show you eventually. That God's doing something. I want to live for God for my son's sake. I want to live for God for my grandchildren's sake. I want to live for God for my great-grandchildren's sake. If any of them would get married. I told them, Bryn's my last hope. Somebody's got to get married. They don't. They don't. I'm not Hannah, you know. Give me grandchildren or I die. I'm not, that's not me. I'm trusting God, amen. The rapture may happen. This may be the generation of the rapture. Changes the whole view on things, doesn't it? This is it. If we're going to be raptured out, then God bless America. Amen. There'll be no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. So are you in God's program? You know what I'm going to say to you? You are. Whether you know it or you don't know it as a believer, you're in God's physical fitness, spiritual fitness program. And it's going to be rigorous. It's going to be painful. It's going to be challenging. And then through it all, just go to Jesus and say, I just trust you. I trust you. I trust you. May God help you see it. Father, help us. Help us, help us to see it as Joseph saw it, as Daniel saw it, and so many other children of God saw it, as Paul the Apostle saw it, as Stephen, the first deacon, saw it, as so many in the Fox's Book of Martyrs understood it. Help us to trust you in the middle of the rigor. Lord God, there may be some here this morning without Christ or personal Savior. You couldn't say to me, Brother Bill, I know if I die, I'm going to heaven. Well, you know you're going to die. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. So you already know that. The question is, in where are you going to spend eternity? You say, Brother Bill, is there life after death? You know there is. You know there is. Where are you going to spend eternity? Well, God gives you this thing called life to figure that out. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can be saved today. You can have your sins forgiven by putting simple childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says it this way in Romans 10, 9, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. You'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sins. Saved from the penalty of those sins. And be given a new life in Christ. Oh, so much. Maybe God's been working on you. Maybe you got a grandparent praying for you or a parent praying for you. Oh, right this moment, maybe they're even praying for you. Oh, dear one, give your life to Jesus before death comes. Oh, God, we pray that you'd help the people that are in the midst of the rigor, that help them to look up and say, Lord, I trust you. Help them to understand it. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.